And there it comes, slowly descending. Listen to the roar now. New Year's Eve 1962, a crowd gathers in Times Square to see the big ball drop and usher in 1963. Of course, no one knew what lay ahead, the immense tragedy that now loomed just 11 months on the horizon. I'm Paul Brandish. You're listening to Countdown to Dallas, a podcast series based on my book of the same title. For Lee Harvey Oswald, 1963 began as 1962 ended with a dysfunctional marriage and taking out his frustrations with his uneventful banal life on his wife. On January the 7th, he discovered a letter written to Marina by an old boyfriend. He hit her. I'll never trust you again, he said. Marina would later say that at this point in his life, the final year of his life, Oswald was, quote, very unrestrained and very explosive, unquote. Lee became more and more tense, and he began to hit Marina something he had never done before. And by the winter, he hit her more and more frequently and harder. That's Priscilla Johnson McMillan on PBS's Frontline. McMillan, who interviewed Oswald in Moscow in 1959, spent months interviewing Marina after the assassination of President Kennedy. Her book, the title is Marina and Lee, is highly recommended. In that book, she goes deeper into Oswald's violent persona, his vicious assaults on his own wife. Here's a description based on those interviews with Marina of Oswald's behavior. Quote, the second he got angry, he turned pale and pressed his lips tightly together. His eyes were filled with hate. His voice dropped to a murmur, and she could not understand what he was saying. When he started to strike her, his face became red and his voice grew angry and loud. He wore a look of concentration as if Marina were the author of every slight he had ever suffered and he was bent on wiping her out, obliterating her completely. To Marina, it seemed that it was not even a human being he saw in front of him. Most horrifying of all was the gleam of pleasure in his eyes, unquote. Now, given the baseline characteristics of Oswald that we've discussed in prior episodes, none of this should be surprising. After all, this was the same guy who threw rocks at children, pulled knives on members of his own family, and shot a BB gun in the direction of his neighbors, among other things. Frankly, Lee Harvey Oswald shouldn't have been walking the streets. He should have been uh, imprisoned. Dr. Larry Sabato is a professor of politics at the University of Virginia, a longtime student of the Kennedy assassination, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Kennedy Half-Century. The spousal abuse, even back then, you could get a prison sentence for the kind of, of wife beating, as we used to call it, that he was guilty of. But alas, nothing was done. At this point, you have to ask if Marina, who had left Oswald previously, albeit briefly, spoke English, if she had known what options might have been available to her 
if Oswald had been reported to the authorities for the violent and habitual attacks on his wife, if only you have to wonder if history might have turned out differently. Meanwhile, Oswald continued to work at Jagger's Child Stovall, the graphic arts firm. He was learning some useful skills like how to operate complex camera equipment, work in a dark room, and to make clean photo prints. I'll return to Oswald's job in just a moment. But first, a key moment in the Oswald saga. On January the 27th, he bought a gun, a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver from Seaport Traders of Los Angeles. Now, in those days, in that more innocent era, you could buy guns through the mail quite easily. Oswald didn't even have to show ID or even give his name. In fact, he invented one, A.J. Heidel. The form needed a witness, so he invented that too, D.F. Driddle. And as long as he was making stuff up, he also claimed that he was 28 years old. Oswald, of course, was just 23. He slipped a $10 bill into the envelope for a down payment. He'd pay the 1995 balance on delivery. Now, you'll recall that in a prior episode, we established that one of Oswald's lifelong baseline behaviors was dishonesty. It was on display here, three lies on one little form. The gun was shipped to a Dallas post office box rented by Oswald on October the 9th, 1962, just as he was quitting his prior job at the Leslie Welding Company. He would keep the mailbox numbered 2915 through mid-May. Now, why A.J. Heidel? It's possible that Oswald used the name of a Marine he knew in Japan, John Heidel, who was often called Heidel. But Marina Oswald thinks he used it because it was similar to Fidel, as in Castro. As for the A, that was short for Alec, the name given to Oswald by his co-workers in Minsk. And the J, McMillan says it stood for James, which she thinks was taken from Ian Fleming's James Bond novels, which Oswald enjoyed, as did President Kennedy, by the way. This is the story, the fantastically true story, of Herbert A. Philbrick, who for nine frightening years did lead three lives. Using phony names was also a common tactic in Oswald's favorite TV show, I Led Three Lives which we discussed in detail back in episode two. He had no reason to lie about buying a gun. He just lied easily and out of habit. It was one of those lifelong baseline characteristics of Oswald and would be right up to the end of his life. On February the 13th, Lee and Marina went to a party at the home of his friend, George de Morinschild. There, he ran into a guy named Volkar Schmidt, an oil company geologist. Their conversation centered around Oswald's favorite topic, politics. Lee Harvey Oswald brought up in the conversation with me the uh, fact that he really felt very angry about the support which the Kennedy administration gave to the Bay of Pigs invasion. It turned out that Lee Harvey Oswald really idealized the socialism of Cuba. 
while he was critical of the socialism in the Soviet Union. And he was just obsessed with his anger towards Kennedy. They also discussed General Edwin Walker, a staunch anti-communist and member and spokesman for the right-wing John Birch Society. He had recently been forced to retire by President Kennedy for preaching of sorts right-wing extremism to his troops. I mentioned General Walker, who deserved criticism because he was a racist, retired general, ultra-right-wing, and who had just a few a little time before uh, talked to students at the University of Mississippi who then got so agitated that they shot and killed some reporters. Schmidt was referring to riots which erupted at the University of Mississippi after a black student, James Meredith, was admitted, shattering the school's long history of segregation. General Walker showed up to lead a revolt by white students. After violent riots broke out, He was arrested and spent a week in jail. But it was after his release that Walker did something that would infuriate Oswald. The former general set off on a cross-country tour to drum up support for the overthrow of Fidel Castro, Oswald's hero. More now from Volkmar Schmidt. In hindsight, I probably may have given Lee Harvey Oswald the idea to go after General Walker. I certainly didn't tell him to take the law in his own hand, not at all. He may also have thought of General Walker independently. Schmidt's comments are from a 1993 episode of PBS's Frontline. As we'll shortly find out, the Walker saga would underscore yet again one of the lifelong characteristics that define Oswald, his explosive temper and penchant for violence. Meantime, on or about February 15th, Marina told Lee that she was expecting their second child. Lee was thrilled and hoped it was a boy. And yet, Priscilla Johnson McMillan, who spent months interviewing Marina in 1964, said Oswald, within days of learning of Marina's pregnancy, began hitting her again. Once, he hit her so hard that blood began to run from her nose. Oswald said, quote, Oh my God, I didn't mean for that to happen. He ran out and slammed the door. When he returned home, again, this is what Marina told McMillan in 1964, Oswald found the door locked. He smashed a small window in the kitchen door, then reached in to unlock it. He then went and laid down in bed next to Marina as if nothing had happened. But Oswald would sometimes cry, reinforcing Marina's belief that her husband was in some sort of inner and undefinable turmoil. This cycle of violent explosion by Oswald, then a brief return to some sort of normality, was par for the course in 1963. Oswald's marriage was unstable, dysfunctional, and violent. Neighbors in the Oswald's shoddy apartment complex were no stranger to all this. One neighbor told the manager of the apartment complex that, quote, I think that man over there is going to kill her. The manager's wife would often drop in on Marina to make sure that she was okay. At one point, the Oswalds were threatened with eviction. Oswald decided to leave. He found a place nearby at 214 West Neely Street in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas. They left with Oswald stiffing his landlords on part of the rent. Let me take a step back here and mention something that is often overlooked. 
During one of their fights, a confused and battered Marina asked Oswald, why? Why do you do this? Why are you so violent? His answer, according to Marina's interviews with Macmillan, quote, you know my terrible character. You know I can't hold myself in very long. I love you. I can't stand it when you make me mad, unquote. The significance of this is that Lee Harvey Oswald is linking his violence to his love of Marina. When she rejects him, he explodes. This dynamic, it can be argued, will loom large over the president's assassination, now just months away. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. More Countdown to Dallas right after this quick break. On February the 22nd, the Oswalds went to another dinner party and met someone who would change their lives forever and play a key role in the run-up to the president's assassination. Her name was Ruth Payne, a 30-year-old Quaker who was interested in learning Russian. In a future episode, I'll play portions of my own interview with Ms. Payne, who today is 91 years old. But here she is in the mock trial of Oswald that was held in 1986, being questioned by Prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi. When is the first time you met Lee Harvey Oswald and his wife, Marina? It was in February of 63. I met them at a party in Dallas. You were aware that Marina was from Russia and Oswald, who had defected to Russia in 1959, had met and married Marina in Russia? Yes. Did you speak Russian at the time? Yes, I did. Did you develop an ongoing friendship with the Oswalds? Yes, I did. Well, with Marina. More. As the Oswalds' marriage crumbled, Payne would eventually offer Marina and June shelter at her home in the Dallas suburb of Irving. More on that later. But back to General Walker, Oswald hated the right-wing general who was now advocating for the overthrow of Cuba's communist leader, Fidel Castro. An angry Oswald decided to take a radical step. He would assassinate Walker. But how? On March 12th, after spotting an ad in American Rifleman magazine, Oswald bought a rifle. Using the same phony name, A.J. Heidel, and the same Dallas post office box that records show he rented in his real name the prior fall, Oswald bought a mail-order rifle from Klein's Sporting Goods of Chicago, an Italian-made 6.5-millimeter Manlico Carcano. It came with a four-power scope. A fake name, a P.O. box, 
no questions, no background check. This, in 1963, showed how easy it was to buy a dangerous weapon. Oswald began to plan meticulously for the Walker assassination. He staked out the general's home in the upscale Turtle Creek neighborhood, taking reconnaissance photos and examining the back alley, looking for the best place to shoot. His notes would be found in his possessions in November after the murder of President Kennedy. Here's Gerald Posner, author of Case Closed, speaking to PBS's Frontline. Oswald had an entire book of operations for his Walker action, including photographs of Walker's house, photographs of an area that he intended to stash the rifle, maps that he had drawn very carefully, statements of political purpose. In the end, he wanted this to be an important historical feat, and this was to be the documentation left behind. He viewed General Walker as an up-and-coming Adolf Hitler, and that he would be the hero who stopped him on his rise to power. While he waited for his rifle to arrive, the revolver he had ordered back in January still had not arrived either. There were other developments in March 1963 that are interesting and worth sharing. Oswald, for all of his professed love for Marina, forced her to write a letter to the Soviet embassy to inquire about her and June returning to the Soviet Union. The embassy soon wrote back, telling the Oswalds to explain why they wanted to return, and to get letters from Marina's relatives in support of such a move. The Soviets also said that it would take up to six months to process such a request. Meanwhile, in Washington, the Joint Chiefs of Staff put the final touches on a plan for the invasion of Cuba. It was to take place in 1964. It called for Cuban exiles to infiltrate Cuba in January, followed by U.S. airstrikes and a full-scale invasion that summer, with the goal of installing a pro-U.S. government by October 1964. Now, this never happened, of course, and conspiracists who think that President Kennedy was removed by far-right elements in the Pentagon, so a more amenable President Johnson would take over and move against Cuba, are usually silent when asked, if this is so, why Johnson never moved against Cuba. It wasn't as if LBJ was inactive in Latin America, after all. He would order 20,000 Marines to the Dominican Republic in 1965, for example, to restore order as that country, just to the east of Cuba, descended into civil war. An interesting question. Finally, on March 25th, in what was quite a coincidence, Both of Oswald's guns would arrive in Dallas on the same day. He picked up his rifle at the post office, then carried it cross town to REA Express, where he finally got his revolver. So Oswald was now armed with a revolver and a rifle. A few days later, March 31st to be exact, Marina was hanging laundry in the backyard to dry when Oswald came down the rickety stairs from their second floor apartment. He was dressed all in black, his revolver at his hip, like some sort of Western gunslinger. In his right hand, he held two of the subversive newspapers he subscribed to, and in his left hand was his most prized possession of all, his rifle. Priscilla Johnson McMillan tells us Marina's reaction. She burst out laughing and asked him what on earth he was doing in that costume, and he told her she was to take a picture of him. Now, remember, because of his job at Jagger's Child Stovall, the graphic arts firm, 
Oswald knew how to work in a dark room and make clean photo prints. He developed those photos, which to this day remain perhaps the most incriminating evidence against him. For six decades, those photos have been challenged by conspiracy buffs who maintain that somehow they have been faked as part of an effort by someone to frame Oswald. But let's examine the history here. Marina Oswald testified that her husband did pose and that she took the photos at his request. Here she is in a 1967 CBS News special. Did you ever see the rifle? Yes. But I, you know, I fear, to fear to take this rifle. I just saw, you know, in the corner. I never done touch this rifle. In the late 1970s, the House Select Committee on Assassinations took another look. Its chief counsel was George Robert Blakey, who spoke to PBS's Frontline in 1993. Oswald himself, shown those photographs, denied that he owned a rifle and denied that this was him in it. He said his head was pasted on it. Uh, The critics uh, of the Warren Commission seized on this. Blakey added this. We took very seriously these charges. We had uh, uh, first the, the evidence examined by the Warren Commission. Marina testifies that she took it. She identifies the camera that she used. Uh, The FBI was able to, to the exclusion of all other cameras, tie that camera uh, to these photographs. Assuming that all that's fake, uh, we went further uh, with a photographic panel and studied very carefully all of the testimony uh, about the shadows being uh, inappropriate. Our photographic panel indicated uh, in great detail uh, that these shadows were not inappropriate that the critics had simply not understood uh, uh, optics accordingly. In fact, Oswald gave a copy of himself posing to his friend George de Morenschild. On the back, Oswald wrote, quote, Hunter of fascists, ha ha ha, in Russian, and dated the photo April 5th, 1963. He then signed it, Lee Harvey Oswald. The House Committee's experts determined beyond a doubt that the signature was Oswald's. More from Chief Counsel Blakey. Any notion that the photograph was faked by other people to frame Lee Harvey Oswald now has to explain uh, the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald himself signed that photograph. Then there's recent and very high-tech research to consider. This is a photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald. It shows him carrying a gun, holstering a pistol, and you can't see what's on the newspaper, but he's holding these Marxist or communist newspapers. Dr. Ahani Farid, at the time of this video, professor of computer science and director of the Newcomb Institute for Computational Science at Dartmouth University, led a detailed forensic investigation into the famous backyard photos. And the photograph was very damning. First of all, it showed that he had weapons, and it also sort of was further evidence of his communist sympathies at the time. And... um, if this photograph is fake, it would almost certainly point to a broader conspiracy because it means the police doctored a photograph to try to spin a story. Farid set out to study the photo in not just a qualitative way, but what he calls a quantitative and mathematical way. And fortunately, there's just now enough technology that we were able to go back and look at this photograph from 1963 to try to answer this question. The original photos, of course, are two-dimensional. So without getting too deep into the weeds here, we're talking about forensics and computer science after all, Professor Ferry built a three-dimensional model to better examine the photos. 
So everything in this photograph is exactly consistent. So you can build a quantitative three-dimensional model of the scene, of the person, of the head, figure out where the camera or the light was, reconstruct, and everything is perfect. So if this was a fake, it would have been almost unimaginable how they could have done this in 1963 because there's lighting in the shadows from the person, from the, 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 the beam, would have been exactly right, which even today would have been extremely hard to do. So it's almost certainly the case that the reason why people think this is a fake is simply a failing of the visual system to reason about 3D lighting and 3D geometry because, in fact, when you do the reconstruction, everything is 100% perfect. Some conspiracy buffs may never accept this, but, as I've said before, there is no conclusive, verifiable proof that the photos were faked. Marina admitted taking them, has vouched for their authenticity. It has been six decades. In any case, Lee Harvey Oswald was now the proud owner of a handgun and a high-powered rifle. The Marine-trained sharpshooter, the young man who admitted he had a violent, explosive temper, was now deep into planning the assassination of a prominent right-wing general. On a quiet Dallas night, he would soon see his quarry up close and squeeze the trigger. If you like this podcast, check out my book of the same title, Countdown to Dallas. Thanks to Dr. Larry Sabato. Sound from the PBS program Frontline, I highly recommend its 1993 episode titled, Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald? Also sound from CBS, Ziv Television Productions, London Weekend Television, and Showtime. Our editor and producer, Aaron Land. Audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.